You are listening to Historically, a show where we debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in schools and on corporate media. My name is JD, and this is my co-host, Isha. It's no secret that the U.S. government has used its military might and its funds to overthrow Democratic leaders for a more business-friendly dictator. But... This time, instead of the bloody coups that we are all familiar with, the U.S. business interests have deployed a more sophisticated technique. Brian Meyer from Brazil Wire joins us to talk about Operation Car Wash and the U.S.-backed coup in Brazil that happened right under our noses. Today, both Janet Millen and Brandon Winters will be filling in for JD. Also, I apologize for the baby cries in the background. My niece had just vomited all over my car and I was driving and Brian was such a champion. He, he went on with the interview because he was really busy. Um, so there are some parts of the interview where you will be hearing a baby crying, but this won't become a regular occurrence. Thank you for your understanding. Give a quick summary in five minutes. What would you say? Well, Lava Jato is an an anti-corruption investigation that was started in cooperation between a couple different agencies in a couple different countries. The U.S. Department of Justice, the SEC, the FBI, the Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office, and the Brazilian Federal Police. And in some stages of the investigation, also the Swiss government. Okay, so basically we now know from leaked State Department cables that in 2009, the U.S. State Department held an event with the Department of Justice and Brazilian, members of the Brazilian Judiciary and Public Prosecutor's Office in which they planned a future joint operation to fight corruption. And Sergio Moro was a speaker at this event. And in the leaked cables, they talk about planning this operation either in Curitiba or Cuiabá, which is another city in Brazil. Curitiba, for example, is the capital of Paraná. And Paraná was home to the largest Nazi mobilization outside of Germany and Austria in history in uh, in the 1930s, they had a Nazi rally in Curitiba that had 200,000 people attend it. So it's wow. one of the most conservative places in Brazil. And uh, basically, what we know is that a couple years later, after this meeting in 2009, this investigation started. And it was announced as a across-the-board anti-corruption investigation, but it became very clear immediately that they were only targeting members of the PT party. And they were using techniques from the Department of Justice that the U.S. DOJ used when it was investigating Enron and uh, when it shut down Arthur Anderson Corporation erroneously. It put 30,000 people out of work. And also when they went after... Republican Congress, Senator Ted Stevens in Alaska. And these techniques are constitute really kind of dirty tricks because the investigations are based on plea bargain testimonies, often with no other material evidence. And so what they'll do is they'll arrest somebody 
They'll arrest members of his family. They'll threaten them with these really long, outrageous prison sentences, like 90 years, 70 years. And then say, if you read off of this script, we will lower your sentence. We'll let you keep part of your illicit assets. And so over the course of about three or four years, they, they threw out a lot of spurious associations between Dilma Rousseff and corruption in the Petrobras Petroleum Company, which never panned out. So when she was impeached, a lot of people in the North, due to the way the issue was covered in the New York Times and other newspapers, believed that Dilma Rousseff was somehow involved in this operation, and she was not. The Lava Jato operation never raised any accusations against Dilma Rousseff. She was eventually impeached for committing a budgetary infraction called fiscal peddling, which is not an impeachable offense in Brazil. And the, the crime itself was legalized a week after she left office. So, so it, basically what happened is they cover the massive amounts of corruption in the construction industry, which is one of the five corrupt industries in the world. So that's not really a surprise. And in the petroleum industry, which is another one of the five most corrupt industries in the world, I don't believe any petroleum company in the world could hold up to any kind of scrutiny when you're looking at corruption. I mean, Shell Petroleum Company's executives have been caught on tape bragging about how they placed cabinet ministers in the Nigerian government. Petroleum companies have been accused of setting up militias to kill indigenous peoples in the Amazon jungle in Ecuador and Bolivia. So we know that these are corrupt industries. But the way that the corruption was handled was, first of all, to paralyze the Brazilian economy in the lead up to the coup. When Volkswagen was uncovered being involved in massive, massive amounts of corruption in Germany, the German government treated Volkswagen as too big to fail because of all the jobs that it generated. When Goldman Sachs was busted, involved in that massive scandal which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and eventually led to a million American families losing their homes, the U.S. government treated it too big to fail and lent it money, billions of dollars. So when the Lava Jato investigation uncovered corruption in the construction industry, they paralyzed all projects and all operations in the five largest construction companies in Brazil in 2015, and this caused an immediate 500,000 job losses directly. My God. And uh, when was Petrobras, the, the main state-owned petroleum company is called Petrobras, when was that nationalized? Petrobras was created as a national company in the 19, early 1950s by Getulio Vargas. And... International petroleum companies like Chevron at the time and, and others uh, actually tried to um, stage a coup d'etat against Vargas because he, na he created a national petroleum company and he killed himself to avoid the coup. So, the, you know, and it's, it's been around since then. During the 1990s, it was partially privatized. So it's a little bit of a misnomer the way it's always referred to as this state petroleum company, because actually it's only about 51% government controlled, 49% owned by shareholders, private shareholders. 
However, um, it's an important company for, for the Brazilian government and for Brazilian sovereignty. And Brazil, as a result of Petrobras, Brazil has been a world leader in alternative energies. In the 1970s, the dictatorship decided that Brazil should be self-sufficient on energy for security purposes. So Petrobras developed the alcohol-powered car. And now wow. around 50% of the vehicles in Brazil run on alcohol, which uh, Brazilian alcohol is better. It's about 20% better for the environment than petroleum, you know, because you have to cut down trees to plant sugarcane or whatever, but they but it's better for the environment than the corn ethanol they use in the US, which apparently has no gain for the environment or no loss. So it's 20% cleaner than petroleum. And also Brazil is the world leader in natural gas powered vehicles. It has millions of national, national, uh, natural gas powered vehicles also because of Petrobras. And Petrobras has a long history of funding social projects in Brazil and uh, actually, before the 2016 coup, Dilma Rousseff passed a law saying that all of the profits from Petrobras had to be allocated to public education and the public health system. And this law was immediately canceled after the coup. And uh, coup, illegitimate coup president Michel Temer began privatizing Petrobras, specifically the offshore oil reserves, privatizing them to... Uh, the same American and English and European petroleum companies, some of which were involved in the 1964 coup and the 1954 attempted coup. So it's a, it's a big issue. Brazil has the largest, the world's largest offshore oil deposits. And look around the world at what countries have a lot of oil. And you can ask yourself, which of these have not been invaded by the United States government? or suffered coups that were sponsored by the US government, such as the 1953 coup in Iran, which was over oil, the 2002 coup attempt in Venezuela, also about oil. So really, some people call, might call you a conspiracy theorist for suggesting that the US is somehow involved in the coup, in Lula's arrest, and in the rise of Bolsonaro, but if you look at the history of the U.S. relations with countries that have a lot of petroleum, as well as U.S. government relations in Latin America, where, according to a study that was published in Harvard, uh, the U.S. sponsored over one, uh, no, 44 Hello? coup d'etats between 1894 and 1994 in Latin America. So it would be foolish, I think, not to look at the U.S. influence in this, these processes. Okay, so in 2007, the CIA director, John Negroponte, said that in a rare but honest moment, that democracy in Latin America is a threat to national security. Um, that was when Hugo Chavez was around, Lula and Kirchner. But do you think that's when they started planning the Lava Jato? Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, you know, the... I think that there's never a moment in U.S.-Brazilian relations when the U.S. government hasn't been planning some kind of way to okay. destabilize uh, or promote their interests. John Negroponte is an interesting character because he's now the director of a think tank called ASCOA, America's Society Council of the Americas, which was 
founded by one of the Rockefellers in the 1960s and has been involved in almost every coup in Latin America since then. Is that then. the School of Americas? No, it's not. It's a think, it's a think tank that um, it runs a magazine called uh, America's Quarterly, mm -hmm. but it also feeds hundreds of stories into the mainstream media. For example, the editor, of, the assistant editor of America's Quarterly just became the Latin America desk editor at New York Times. And so they're always feeding this pro-American business propaganda into the American media. And they actually flew Jair Bolsonaro up to New York last year to hold uh, behind the, you know, behind closed doors meeting with US business leaders. And after that, Bolsonaro decided to appoint this extreme neoliberal economist who was educated at the University of Chicago named Paulo Guides to be his economics chief. And so That's we feel scary. like they're directly involved in the rise of Bolsonaro. And John Negroponte is the director of the think tank. These are, this is an organization that offered in 1970 to pay members of the Chilean Senate to block uh, Salvador Allende come, taking the presidency. You know, and then they did the dirty history in Latin America. And they're financed by all of the oil companies, uh, by Dow and Monsanto, Microsoft, you know. All evil. Yeah, well, we feel like they're a major actor. Okay. Bolsonaro, for sure. Can we talk about, there's a weird judge that like raises a lot of red flags. Sergio Moro. Yeah. Can you talk about what's odd about him and his well, he's the guy I was talking about from Curitiba who gave a speech in 2009 at this joint U.S. He's the head of Lava Jato investigation. Yeah. Um, so but in, in um, I, I was reading too in 2007, and, and Asha was saying, um, you know, it, that's when Negro Ponte came out with his, you know, with the quote that she was she was talking about. But he also was up here at a international visitors leadership program, um, and, and then even before that, he he so he had, he's had ties to the United States since uh, what like 2004 or something. Maybe. Well, I think he was at Harvard the first time in 99. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, that's, that's Harvard. But yeah, he's obviously a U.S. government operative because he's been allowed by the Brazilian courts to operate outside of the law. He's repeatedly broken the law down here and nothing ever happens to him. He just most recently broke the law uh, in September when he illegally leaked plea bargain testimony that he said implicated presidential candidate Fernando Haddad in corruption to the media. Although this testimony had already been dismissed by the Brazilian courts for not uh, implicating Haddad in anything six months earlier. So that's an electoral crime that he committed just last month. And he leaked, he illegally wiretapped ex-president Lula and the president Dilma Rousseff and leaked that conversation to the media, which is also a crime. He illegally wiretapped Lula's defense team, all of his lawyers' offices, hundreds of telephone calls, also a crime, you know? And, uh, and so now Bolsonaro's just invited him to be the justice minister. 
And he's a low-level judge. He's from a low-level court. He's the guy who got the leading presidential candidate arrested on nothing, absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, and now, as a, re as a reward for that, he's going to be justice minister. Like, anyone who thinks this guy is still impartial is just ridiculous. And this think tank, as COA, which I was mentioning, they fed hundreds of fluff pieces praising Sergio Moro as this anti-corruption hero into the American media in 2015, 16, and 17. And 18. <laughs> yeah, well, 18. I don't know what they're doing this year, but yeah, he's still being treated like this hero. And he's a, you know, he's a sadist. He had Guido Mantega, who was Dilma Rousseff's finance minister, arrested during a chemotherapy session of his Jesus. wife in the hospital and invited all the media to take pictures of him there and then dropped the charges later on because there was no evidence of uh, Mantega doing anything illegal. It, the, I don't know. It seems like he kind of does prosecutorial investigations while being a judge, and that part confuses me. Well, this is a... This is something that they never mention in the, in the northern media when they talk about them, but it's very important. Brazil still has some laws that go back to the actual Inquisition. He actually is an inquisitor. He can judge on his own criminal investigations. There are judges in Brazil who are both investigators and judges who can rule on their own investigations with no jury. So it's absolutely ridiculous. Like he wrote a, one of his partners, who's also a judge and an investigator, wrote a book about the investigation before it went to trial and was going around the country giving book tours, talking about how Lula was guilty before it even went to trial. So so, absolutely I'm absurd. So a judge who, who investigates, like he can judge his own, invest, like there's no conflict of interest or recusals or things like that. There's no legal conflict. Obviously, there's a conflict of interest because this guy became famous for prosecuting Lula. You know, so his entire career depended on a guilty verdict. If he hadn't managed to declare his own investigation successful, it would have ruined his career. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's go back to like the DOJ under the Obama administration. So I heard during that time, American investors got... $30 billion back from Lava Jato. Can you explain what happened there? No, not $30 billion, $1 billion. Oh, sorry. What I said, a little bit more than a billion. Yeah, well, it's a joint investigation. And so they established fines for the people who broke the law, who they proved had broken the law. And the fines were, some of the fines went up to the United States. So the DOJ collected over a billion dollars. And I don't, actually know what they did with the money, if they went back to investors or if they kept some of it. I'm not sure. But yeah, this is, this is something that's important to mention, that this whole process started during the Obama administration, which is very depressing because a lot of progressives in Brazil thought that Obama was going to be an ally. And he turned out to be a nightmare for Brazil. PT made some moderate reforms, but they weren't communist or anything like that. So what was the problem that the U.S. had with a long PT governance? A lot of people say the PT made moderate reforms. You know, this is this has gotten into the English language somehow. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think you should play down the fact that 
they lifted 40 million people out of poverty before wow. the PT took office. There was a starvation crisis going on in Brazil. There was massive, massive growth stunting because of hunger in the Northeast. Mm. The average height of someone in the Northeast was like five foot three, five foot four at one mm -hmm. point for men, and maybe four, ten, five feet for women because of growth, massive growth stunting. And they eliminated hunger, almost completely eliminated hunger, and lifted 40 million people above the poverty line. Wow. There was this anti-PT narrative spread in the pages of magazines like Jacobin. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point where the PT was being attacked for not being left enough, which fair enough. If you're in power, you deserve to be criticized. But I think they really overstated their case when people started saying that the PT party was neoliberal and their government was neoliberal. And it's offensive because if a, if a neoliberal administration was able to lift 40 million people above poverty, then you're kind of making an argument in favor of neoliberalism when you call the PT neoliberal. And so basically you're helping conservatives when you say that. But the point is like, why did so many people get rise above the poverty line? They, they, raised the minimum wage from around $50 American when they took office to when Lula left office, it was $315 a month. And this is something that's against everything that neoliberalism stands for. Neoliberalism is based, one of the tenets of neoliberalism is But sorry, getting to your point, your question about why the US would be angry with, or would not support the PT government, I think it has to do a lot with sovereignty because the PT under Lula, the Brazilian government spread out. It stopped depending so much on the U.S. It reached out to Russia and China. It created the BRICS in order to build a kind of counter hegemony to U.S. interests in the world. They got involved in the U.S. UN Security Council. And also there's the question of petroleum, which is really important because Around, I guess, 2006, 2007, Brazil announced it had the world's largest offshore petroleum reserves. And I think that the fact that the petroleum is essentially controlled by the government in Brazil uh, really got the U.S. interested in, like, how can we access this? So I, I think that it was a, a change in, in the U.S. relation with Brazil when Brazil became such a major petro nation, you know, and that led to, that and other things such as the fact that Dilma Rousseff bought a bunch of fighter jets from Sweden instead of from Boeing, this angered people in the U.S. And, you know, other things like that led to the point where the U.S. decided, well, we have to overthrow this government, you know. Going back to when um, you, you were talking about how when Obama was in office, um, that he was no friend of theirs. There, there was an ominous speech from Hillary Clinton where she mentions ballot box is not enough. Um, what do you think uh, she meant by that, by that speech? Well, I'm not sure that I'm thinking of the exact same speech, but I remember her on C-SPAN saying something in 2009, like in Latin America, the ballot box isn't enough. We have to work with countries to develop independent, strong and independent judiciaries, right? Yes. And 
if you see what's happened in Brazil <laughs> since then, the judiciary has practically taken over the country. And the problem with that is that it's the only branch of government that is not held democratically accountable to the populace. And it's also traditionally elite and white and conservative, you know, because judges aren't elected in Brazil. They pass exams to, to become judges. So it's really anti-democratic for the U.S. government to come in and say, well, we're going to strengthen the one branch of government that's, that's not elected and that's almost 100% white and conservative. I was a little bit confused about the coup, but now that you mention it, I totally understand why it's weaponized and how, like, how, how it was, um, it fit into the narrative. Oh, this is just a silly question. Have you seen the TV show Il Mecanismo? Yeah, I wrote, I actually wrote a couple of articles about it in Portuguese when it came out. It's a, it's a disgrace, that show. That's, that show is ridiculous. And it, it really shows Padilla, the director's true colors. You know? So one show that probably was not a documentary, but soon to become a documentary is 3%. <laughs> Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, I kind of like 3%. I love 3%. I haven't watched too much of it, but I love the way they use Sao Paulo, which is where I live. And I love the oh, way they, yeah. the, in fact, they're, the headquarters of one, the group in there at one point, they were filming it as if it was in this one building that's a, that was a squat that fell over this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> that building with all the glass and everything. Yeah, yeah. Isha, would you maybe want to explain what uh, La Mecanisma is about for the listeners? Yeah, Go the, ahead. The mechanism. You want me to explain it? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen the show myself. I figured probably some people listening. He should explain it. <laughs> right. Okay, well, there's a director named Jose Padilla who directed a movie called Elite Squad, which looking back at it now is really just glorifying fascism, glorifying a uh, military police death squad called the BOPI, which uses an SS logo on its vehicles in Rio de Janeiro. Wow. And uh, so that's how that's his claim to fame, this movie Elite Squad, which had, you know, conservative Bra white Brazilians cheering in the theaters when he tortured to death black teenagers in the movie when the police character did. So he's not uh, he's kind of always had these fascist tendencies. And the mechanism is a fictionalized drama based on. Lava Jato investigation, except that in the television show, which was released during an election year when Lula was still running for office and was the leading candidate, it puts actions and words, uh, it attributes them to Lula that were actually done by his political enemies. And so the, there was a, for example, a famous phone conversation was leaked to the media between a congressman and a minister and a member of the private sector in which they were talking about throwing Dilma Rousseff out of office through a big deal with the Congress, the Senate, with the Supreme Court, with everybody, okay? And in the mechanism, they have Lula saying that he's gonna make a big deal with the Congress, the Supreme Court, and everybody, which is exactly like the opposite of what happened. And so it was really, it was boycotted in Brazil I don't know how it did ratings-wise, but... Uh, and then Padilla was saying, like, oh, well, it's fiction. People have to understand that. 
Well, yeah, but you know, it's fiction. Okay, everyone knows who you're making fun of in this thing. In the U.S., it was marketed as loosely based on a true story, so they didn't even try to say it was fiction. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, the Turner Diaries were fiction. It doesn't change the fact that it's, it's a piece, a virulently racist piece of garbage. Um, also. <laughs> okay, so one yeah. thing that's been concerning me is um, ever since Bolsonaro got into office, like the stock market and the speculators like are having a good time. Like the stocks are rising. And can you ex explain a little bit more about why they're so excited? They're excited because he's going to sell off everything at below market rates. Uh, Brazil is one of the richest countries in the world in natural resources, maybe the richest, you know, if you look at everything Brazil has. Okay, so he's talking about just selling off the Amazon, the entire Amazon jungle to loggers and miners. Uh, he's going to privatize, he said he's going to privatize everything. And his economics minister, Paulo Guides, who's a former economics advisor to Augusto Pinochet, oh, a geez. huge friend of Wall Street. You know, so the, of course, up in the U.S., they're ecstatic. You know, the Wall Street Journal supported Bolsonaro. So. Yep, I was horrified. Yeah, they were upfront about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't listened to mainstream media much, but it seems like they've mainly ignored the election, but now they're kind of softening him up and saying Bolsonaro is kind of like our Trump, which is so not true. Exactly. They're, what they're doing is they're working to normalize everything now. First ah. of all, you have this hegemonic, hegemonic media, like The Guardian and The New York Times, which spent the last four or five years uncritically repeating everything that uh, the Lava Jato investigators said, uncritically repeating everything that the very conservative Brazilian media said about the PT party. The week before the 2014 presidential elections, the New York Times ran eight articles which erroneously misled American readers into believing that Dilma was connected to corruption in Petrobras Petroleum Company, which was totally untrue. So they've been involved in this process the whole time. When the day Lula was taken to jail, the Guardian ran an article saying that he was sentenced for corruption connected to 49 million reais in bribery in the Petrobras Petroleum Company. In the actual sentence, Judge Sergio Moro says, we found no connection between Lula and Petrobras or any kind of bribery in Petrobras Petroleum Company. So the Guardian deliberately misled readers into thinking that Lula was guilty. This is a natural process. He's going to jail. He might have been a good president, but he's going to jail because he did something wrong. You know, so for years, the media has been building this false narrative, paving the way for this moment. And so now that Bolsonaro has taken office, you see this hand-wringing, these weepy articles in the New York Times, Guardian, Washington Post. How did this happen? How could we have let this happen? Well, they're complacent in the whole process. So at the same time that there's this hand ring, this weepy hand wringing about fascism, they're normalizing it. You know, they're working to normalize it. So I, I saw, for example, an article by Tom Phillips from The Guardian about the Not Him movement in Brazil, in which he went out of his way to interview three women who supported Bolsonaro. Now, I, I, went, I was so angry when I saw this 
Because really, if you're a newspaper, you have an editorial line. Let's not pretend that newspapers are impartial and objective. You have an editorial line. And The Guardian's, historically, its editorial line has been progressive. So why would you give equal time to fascists? I have a friend whose great uncle was arrested in Germany in the 1930s because he had a copy of The Guardian on him. And I went back after I read this horrible article by Tom Phillips and read a few Guardian articles about Nazism from the 1930s. And they didn't go out of their way to give equal time to Nazis in their articles about Nazism. So why are, you know, why are they doing it now? They're, norm they're normalizing it. And this other thing that the media is saying is, oh, well, Brazilians are just really terrified of rising violence. That's why they voted for Bolsonaro, which is also, it doesn't hold up to any kind of scrutiny. Okay. With the violent, okay, with the quote-unquote violent, their crime, Bolsonaro's kind of vague on this. Is it basically a lot of people are upset that they have to live near a favela or something like that? No. Uh, yeah, because violence always seems to be a very politically loaded term, sort of the way crime does. I know here, and I imagine elsewhere, certain things that you know poorer people do are crimes. Petty theft is a crime. Crashing the world economy somehow isn't. I'm assuming, like, I'm assuming the term is equally loaded there. Exactly. I mean, like, if normally what you see is that the people who are least threatened by crime and violence are the ones who complain about it the most. But in, I just mm -hmm. published an article today in Brazil Wire about this. Basically, one quarter of Bolsonaro's votes came from Sao Paulo State. You could kind of call Sao Paulo the California of Brazil economically because it's the, it has a huge population, has more than 40 million people. That's 20% of the whole country. And a quarter of Bolsonaro's votes came from that state. Sao Paulo's violence rates have plummeted over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, Sao Paulo state had a murder rate like as high as Washington, D.C. city. And now the capital, Sao Paulo, has a murder rate of seven per 100,000 residents, which is kind of comparable to New York City or even some European city. And this is where... This is the state that most supported Bolsonaro, whereas the states that actually are having violence crises right now, most of which are in the Northeast, most of them, you know, carried Haddad from the PT party. So if violence is an issue, then the people who are worried about violence voted for the PT, not for Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's okay. solution for violence is ridiculous and it's not going to work. Now that you mentioned the Northeast, can you tell people who the Quilambolas are? And what he threatened to do to them. Quilombola is a word that means people who are descendants of people from Quilombo. Mm -hmm. Quilombo in English, I usually translate it as maroon community. Mm -hmm. A lot of Americans don't know what a maroon community is because they hide this history from Americans. But during slavery times, a lot of slaves escaped and they moved out to the countryside, into the jungle, and formed their own communities, often mixing in with in the Indians, the indigenous peoples. And, uh, you know, one example would be the Maroons in, in Jamaica, right, up in the Blue Mountains. They created a kind of autonomous zone that maintained relations with the Jamaican government, but basically had its own governance, didn't allow slavery in there and everything. And they opened doors for, like, people who, had, who were escaping regular society, people who had debt and things like that also entered these communities. So Brazil, being the country that had by far the most slaves in 
in the Western Hemisphere. You know, it also had the most quilombos, thousands of them, really. At one point, there was a nation called Palmares with about nine towns that were all quilombos that had relations with the Dutch government in Pernambuco in the 1600s. It lasted for like 100 years. And so basically, during the 1990s, the federal government began investigating these communities and something that was carried on by the Lula administration, giving them land rights and giving them a legal distinction similar to Indian reservations or indigenous First Nations reservations. Mm -hmm. And Bolsonaro's just saying, well, he's just going to get rid of all of that. And he also wants to get rid of Indian reservations, indigenous oh. reservations. And the indigenous reservations are huge areas where the, you know, they still have a lot of what's left of the Amazon rainforest in them. So when he talks about getting rid of indigenous reservations and quilombolas, he's talking about cultural genocide, and he's talking about cutting down trees. For me, it was ominous because he said the minority can't tell something about majority, and then he said we're not going to give them even a centimeter. Yeah, uh, he's, his words and stuff are very frightening, really. He's, he's said a lot of really horrible things. He told people that he's going to arrest or expel all of the leftists in Brazil. That's 46 million people, according to the election results. Oh and all kinds of things, you know, like, um, and, and even worse is the fact that he has these mobs, these fascist mobs going around killing people right now and beating up people. And he says, well, I can't control it. Just like Trump, you know, when the racist mobs started beating up black people or whatever after the elections and Trump was refused, like Trump refuses to condemn white supremacists. Bolsonaro's mm -hmm. doing the same thing. And Steve Bannon's supporting Bolsonaro, so he's probably copying Trump with this. But the difference is that in the U.S., you still have functioning institutions and checks and balances for the president, presidential power. And in Brazil in the last two years, all of these institutions have been eroded. And so if Bolsonaro takes office, the courts aren't going to be able to do anything to stop him, even if they wanted to, which it doesn't seem like they do. You know, in Congress and the Senate, likewise. Well, that's what I... Is the goal for those mobs to turn them into some kind of paramilitary force akin to the brown shirts? Or is there, or is that not really, well, there not really a plan for them? They wear yellow shirts, you know, they actually wear, I don't... I don't know if it's oh, wow. systematically planned, but it's happening. What does he plan on doing with all the social programs that, like, I've been to Brazil about eight years ago, and it's very, like, there's a nice buses and trains. So what, what is he going to do with the social programs, you think? Eliminate them. That's what he's promising, to eliminate. You know, Brazil developed, I think, the world's best affirmative action program in mm -hmm. the 2000s, where... They just said, look, 50% uh, of all slots in the free public universities now are reserved exclusively for people who went through the public school system <laughs> with a special differential for people of color, you know, or Afro-Brazilians or indigenous peoples. Um, and wow. when Lula took office, only 2% of the people in public universities had gone to public grade schools and high schools because the public universities are really prestigious and they're free. So everyone wants to go to them. They're the, they're the best schools in the country. In addition, he built 17 other public universities. But, you know, Bolsonaro's talking about canceling this. He's talking, he's 
talking about canceling all of the social programs, really, except for the Bolsa Familia welfare program, which he's talking about cutting drastically. Everything else he's saying he's just going to cut. He says the he's going to eliminate poor me-ism, which what? is minorities and gays and, and people like that just crying and about handouts from the government in his rhetoric. That sounds familiar. Yeah. What role do you think Lava Jato played in bringing Bolsonaro to power? Lava Jato brought Bolsonaro to power. Yeah. It's the main factor in bringing Bolsonaro to power. And very simply because the Lula was leading all polls, predicted to win the elections in the first round. There wouldn't have even been a runoff even after he'd been behind bars, held in solitary confinement, and prohibited from speaking to the press for three months, he was still leading all the polls. And they broke the law by refusing to let him run for office from behind bars. And they broke a UN Human Rights Committee ruling, which is legally binding in Brazil, ordering Brazil to let Lula run for office. This is all because of Lava Jato. So if Lula was in the elections, Bolsonaro wouldn't be president right now. Okay. Clearly, when Lula was running, Bolsonaro was polling at 16%. Okay, so Lava Jato brought fascism to Brazil, and it's a joint U.S. government-Brazil operation. I've been wondering this. Um, I guess why, why they didn't try this years before. Is it because that with, um, the, like under Lula, the commodity boom was still going on and times were good and this just wouldn't have had any sort of purchase with the populace that they had their opportunity when the commodity boom ended and Dilma was pressured to make cuts and PT was PT, I guess, more vulnerable then. And that's the reason for the timing of Lava Jato. Well, they tried to depose Lula in 2005 through another manufactured corruption scandal called Mensalão, and it failed. You know, I think they decided at that point that Lula was just too strong. And so they waited okay. for Dilma to come to office. And yeah, they took, they took advantage of economic slowdown. But there's a lot of talk about how all of the gains from the Lula years were because of the commodities boom. And I see that repeated even in left American press. I just want to make clear that everyone forgets the world financial crisis of 2008, which barely touched Brazil because of the PT party's Keynesian preemptive measures to protect against the subprime mortgage crisis. So that it wasn't like he was just cruising along in this economic good times the whole time while he was present. He actually protected successfully buffered Brazil from the world economic crisis that took place at that, that point. Oh, wow. Okay. And there's a lesson there for, the, for other world leaders <laughs> about what could have been done, including well, here. Something that's in the... interesting is that Brazil has a public mortgage bank called Caixa Econômica Federal, which has been around since the 1820s. 95% of all mortgages in Brazil are held by this bank, and they only invest very conservatively, like in government debt bonds and things like that. And so that's another reason why the mortgage crisis didn't hit Brazil so hard. You know, because oh, okay. It was they, insulated. They were barred from doing any sort of speculative investment. Exa exactly. No, I mean, that's one reason. There are other reasons. Like he, he created an economic stimulus package of a couple hundred billion dollars and rolled it out six months before the crisis hit. Wow. That created all of these incentives for internal... Uh, manufacturing production and internal consumption. Like he, he eliminated taxes on all kinds of items that are built in Brazil 
and he stimulated the construction industry and developed, generated all these construction jobs. So there was a couple of things that he did, none of them neoliberal, all of them actually the opposite of neoliberal, which protected Brazil from that crisis. And, but now you see people saying, oh, well, it was easy for Lula to run the economy because the Chinese commodities boom. But no one ever mentions the, the worst economic crisis in the world since the 1930s took place while Lula was president. That's really impressive that he took um, preemptive measures against it. That's a, a, there's a lot of foresight <laughs> shown by him there. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the reasons he's so widely loved. That's why he would have won the election in the first round from behind bars in solitary confinement. Wow. Okay. So I'm sorry to skip around. But can you also talk about like Bolsonaro's funders in the U.S. and who the shady people are? I don't know, really. You know, we don't really know because it's illegal to have foreign financing for elections in Brazil. So anything that's happening, we know mm -hmm. that he, his people created an illegal slush fund, millions of dollars of donations from business leaders. What the newspaper looking into this discovered is that it was Brazilian business leaders, but these are kind of like comprador class, rentier class pawns of American businesses. Someone's got to start connecting the dots here. We know that as COA, America's Society Council of the Americas, which um, is a think tank funded by Chevron, ExxonMobil, Monsanto, Microsoft, they're very, they were very interested in Bolsonaro's candidacy. And they were supporting, they brought him up there twice. You know, the, the editor of their publication, America's Quarterly, wrote a big article in the biggest newspaper in Brazil before the election saying why so many people on Wall Street are rooting for a Bolsonaro victory. So we, we see some kind of American business connections manifest through the relationship between Ascoa and Bolsonaro. You know, but we also know that he's friends with Mark Rubio and Steve Bannon. Like he's been dealing mm. with those two guys for the last six months, apparently. That's something else I was wondering about the American business interest there. I've assumed that all the oil companies want a piece of Petrobras, but what uh, what else is going on there? Are there plans or I guess, do you think there are plans to, I don't know, privatize Brazil's utilities, that sort of thing? One of the things that Brazil has the world's largest supply of fresh water. The largest mm -hmm. aquifer in, in the world is in Brazil, the Guarani mm -hmm. Aquifer. And the Temer government started talking about oh. selling it to Coca-Cola. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. For example. So that, there's that, you know. Uh, that would be a nightmare. Yeah. That sounds and, like almost cartoonishly yeah. evil. Like, it's like not something I would believe, but it, it is happening. Like, it's something you'd see in a Batman comic, not in real life. But. Oh, a literal a literal Bond villain did that a couple yeah, of movies Quantum ago. Of Sons, <laughs> Quantum of Solace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's right out of a Bond movie. Yeah, it's a Bond villain. <laughs> Since we don't have much time, Brian, can you, uh, do you have anything that you forgot to tell that the audience should know about or learn or anything you want to share? I, I guess all I would say is that what uh, Brazil needs, what we who are on the Brazilian left need right now is solidarity. Uh, it's not a time for Americans to, I think, to be saying, well, what did the Brazilian left do wrong? What were their failures? Americans are in the center of empire. The main enemy to the Brazilian left is the U.S. and international corporations, I think. And so you're in a privileged position if you want to help us in Brazil 
to pressure your lawmakers, you know, pressure your lawmakers somehow to counter the human rights disaster that the Bolsonaro presidency appears to represent. Yeah, Che Guevara called it the bestiality of imperialism and how it just like puts his tentacles everywhere. So, and Noam Chomsky also thinks we should criticize our own government first. So I agree with you that we should look into the U.S. role and stop that so that things like this never happen again. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. If, if the left can't succeed here, then United States uh, imperial power is going to continue to try to kill any sort of left movements overseas. Unfortunately. Um, where does the Brazilian left go from here, do you think? Well, I was at a protest the night before last, covering it for Telesur English. And it was big on Paulista Avenue. I, I was in the the Kut Union Federation headquarters the night of the vote tally, and they were saying we have to take it to the streets now, but it's going to be hard because I think in the U.S., you've probably noticed this as well, since the Iraq war, whenever leftists take to the streets and protest, the media just completely underreports it, if it reports it at all. So in this not yeah. moment, we had over a million people on the streets in Brazil, and in 20 countries abroad, and the Guardian and the New York Times called it tens of thousands. You know? So I guess it's, we're heading to a time when there's a lot of uncertainty and the traditional tactics of the left, like the strike and the street protests, don't seem to be working as well as they did in the past. So do you have any ideas on what will work? Yeah, will this require a new militancy or maybe I should say an old militancy? <laughs> I think that you shouldn't throw out the old tools that leftists use in organizing. Like, I don't think you should abandon striking and protesting on the street because it's not working as well as it did before. I, I don't know what the solution is for countering social media attacks, you know, like social media mm. seems to have fried a lot of people's brains. You know, a lot of Americans think Jesus rode around on dinosaurs and the world's flat because of social media. <laughs> yeah. so I think a new yeah. front maybe is on the internet. How to counter all of this fake, these fake stories. And, you know, fake news has always been going on. And I don't want to sound like Trump complaining about <laughs> fake news because that's ridiculous too. But something has to be done about how easy it is to, to quickly convince large segments of the population total and utter nonsense. Like wonder, like the QAnon thing here. Yeah. <laughs> to, to what extent are the WhatsApp groups used to, I guess, try to elide or maybe obscure class differences? Like, is, is their reach or their intended reach larger than just white upper middle class assholes? Yeah, of course, because in Brazil, everyone uses it. Brazil has the world's most okay. expensive cell phone airtime. So no one uses a phone, you know, regular air time to call anymore. They use WhatsApp, you know, and oh, um, wow. you can use it to make phone calls. So Brazil's the largest WhatsApp user in the world. And what Bolsonaro's people illegally did was they created this massive slush fund. They hired these tech companies illegally to mine data off of WhatsApp and create these uh, demographic groups that they wanted to target, mainly evangelical Christians and um created thousands of groups of 256 people each and bombarded them with lies, like saying that with, and it was very sophisticated the way it was done, which is why a lot of people think the CIA or British intelligence or some intelligence agency was involved in it. They like, they circulated a fake movie alleging that Haddad, Fernando Haddad, when he was mayor of Sao Paulo was distributing erotic baby bottles to toddlers 
in the school system that had oh my god it's nipples. <laughs> yeah and they they spread information like they photoshopped a, a photo of the vice presidential candidate manuela davila with a t-shirt on that said jesus is a transvestite and they just bombarded us <laughs> they said that the pt party was going to create a government commission to declare the gender of all children when they reach age five and so oh, now my. like you know one third of the brazilian population believes this because of what's up that's ah. wow the the similarity to the insanity spread here by alice like breitbart is really striking was working on this oh, oh, also, right yeah yeah that's also the, the Modi government in india has been doing the same exact thing with whatsapp and they've gotten quite a few people killed because of this like they've like accused like random people on a motorcycle of being a rapist or something so yeah, well, people have died here too. People have died. They're killing gays and transvestites and trans people and uh, and leftists. And a lot more people are probably going to die because of this. And I, you know, I hold Zuckerberg accountable for this too. And Facebook company, and WhatsApp company. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really ominous to see the this level of coordination on the right, this internationalism. We're going to have to develop a, a new international, a new socialist international or something, something to, yes, to counter something. this. And the thing is, like, with this, these kind of attacks, hybrid war-style attacks involving social media and psyops and everything, like, money is a factor. And the right always has more money than the left. I'm not sure what we do about that. I don't know, but that I think that's the real battleground now. It's like it's great to keep pressure on the streets. I understand that uh, it's a good moment for striking in transportation hubs and logistics areas. Can they can be very effective, like the trucker strike was recently here? But something has to be developed to counter this massive bra- these massive brainwashing operations. I don't know what else to call it. It's brainwashing. It's like such a delicate balance because you don't want to give Zuckerberg the power to control who sees what, but you don't want crazy things that make your grandpa go crazy either. So that's like the hardest like ethical thing that I've been wrestling with on this. Yeah, it's tricky. I uh, I actually gave a speech to Brazilian Congress about this, a very short speech, five minutes, a couple months ago. But that was that was the debate, like where do you, what the balance is between censorship and brainwashing i guess a lot of people just get all their news off the social media now and if there's no criteria for verifying whether it's true or not and if you have massive conservative financial interests behind it i don't know what the you know i i think that there should be stronger laws against slander Mm -hmm. and i think that social Mm. media companies should be held accountable for allowing people to use their technology to slander and defame other people but I don't really know. But anyway, guys, I've got thank another you. radio thing coming up. In thank you so much for coming. Um, you That was so sweet of you to squeeze us in. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can have you back again. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. I enjoyed it. Send me a link when it comes out. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you.